The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Hi, I'm your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Melissa E. Clark, MD, Harvard-educated physician, patient, advocate, and author of Excuse Me, Doctor, I've Got What?, uh, her book specifically helps consumers make educated decisions regarding conventional and alternative health care. Today, uh, Dr. Clark and I will be discussing a new study published in the journal Health Affairs, which indicates that patients who are more engaged in their health care have better outcomes than those who are passive, and they also may save money. So welcome to the show, Dr. Clark. Nice to have you on this morning. Good morning. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Why is it important in the context of today's healthcare environment that consumers be empowered and well informed? Why is it necessary? Well, studies show, and you've quoted one in health affairs, but there are actually many others that show that patients who are empowered, meaning they are health literate, they understand about their condition, they're not afraid to ask their doctor questions, and they consider themselves managers of health with their doctors as coaches. Those patients go on to do better in terms of outcomes. They're more satisfied with the health care they get. There are fewer mistakes made in their care. And finally, the costs are lower. Uh, because they are participants in the decisions that are made, and therefore sometimes they choose to take the less expensive therapies and actually do better on those. Uh, you know, as a social worker, the first thing that comes to mind is, yes, that sounds like the right thing to do for all the reasons that you mentioned, but when you're diagnosed, and let's say you're diagnosed with some, well, I'll call it a catastrophic illness or a very serious life-threatening illness like cancer or serious heart disease or even diabetes, you're so frightened, you're usually afraid, you're fearful, you feel vulnerable, and so it's almost impossible, it seems to me, to be able to do that, to say, okay, now I'm going to take control and I'm going to do all the things, and you and I are going to talk about what those things one should do to empower oneself, but you're in a position to not feel like you're able to do that. So, do you go? What do you do? Sure. I think that's an excellent question, Catherine. I, first of all, I think it's important to recognize what the word patient means. Um, the root word in the Latin actually means suffering. And unfortunately, um, obviously we do suffer with our illnesses, but we do also suffer through the experience of being a patient. Um, and it puts us in that passive mindset, just as you said. So I think the first step is to recognize the tendency to be in that passive mindset and to start to do things 
number one, to um, change your mental attitude. There are going to be stages that you go through, but understanding that the stage that you want to get to is to, first of all, not think of yourself as your disease. I'm not the diabetic or I'm not the lupus patient. I am whoever you are with this particular disease. And then that automatically puts you in a mindset of my disease doesn't own me. Um, This is something that I can do, and there are specific things that I can do to immediately take charge of my health. The second thing is to do a mental check, um, to check to see, are you depressed? Um, and uh, Or if you are a loved one of someone who's, who is ill, checking to see if they're depressed, because it's important to distinguish the symptoms of depression, because they always make the disease worse in its manifestations. And it makes, again, the person less likely to have that mental attitude of let's move forward. That's the first time I've heard that. And I think that, you know, also coming from where I come from as a mental health care professional, that is important. I don't think that that's someone, something that we very often do. You're diagnosed with a physical illness, like you say, you get a diagnosis of breast cancer. But do you think about, okay, now what's my mental health? Not usually. You start honing in on the physical and kind of Absolutely. leave that behind. But as you say, that's going to how healthy you are mentally is going to impact on how well you handle your your care and, and your treatment. It absolutely does. Um, there are two questions that you can ask yourself or, again, a loved one if you're the caregiver. Um, the first is, for the t- last two weeks, have you felt down, sad, or miserable most of the time? And the second is, have you lost interest or pleasure in most of all or all of your usual activities. And those are, that's a screening test for depression that you can use to understand, okay, should I now talk to a professional about this? Again, because only when you recognize it can you get help for it and can you then get the appropriate treatment, which isn't always pills. Sometimes it's counseling. Sometimes it's support groups of other people going through what you're going through. Um, to then be able to emerge with that mental attitude of let's move forward. For example, studies have shown that diabetics who are depressed have worse hemoglobin A1Cs, worse, that's the measurement of how bad your diabetes is, than those people who are not depressed. So it's, it's critical. One of the things that you're saying is we have to rally our forces, uh, rally the people of the support around us, whoever that may be, and not be a victim. Because you mentioned earlier, patient sort of equates with victim or be patient. You know, I was thinking about that as you were giving us the definition. No, you don't have to be patient. You don't have to be a victim. You are a consumer. You are, whatever your resources are, start using them. And I think that whole, uh, you mentioned it, I don't know if you mentioned it in your book, but that you need to get the support, the natural resources that you have, um, that you had before you were diagnosed with whatever illness you're diagnosed with. Exactly. Well, and excuse me, doctor, I've got what? We talk about that. We talk about um, getting together your healthcare team, and that also includes your family and friends who are close to you, somebody who can serve as an advocate to go with you to doctor visits, because a lot of times you might be... um, um, less than yourself in terms of your own mental sharpness because of pain, because of the condition that you have, because of medications you're on. 
So it's really crucial to have that person in your life uh, who can go with you to the doctor or especially if you're going to be hospitalized to serve as your eyes and ears when you're in the hospital to help um, coordinate uh, your care and, and discuss your case with the doctors and the nurses, etc. Let's say you get diagnosed, and I'm going to take cancer as an example because I think that's something most, if not all of us, are fearful of when you get a diagnosis of cancer. Sure. Um, even if it's not, even if you're not told that it is a terminal illness, but still there's that fear that you're going to die. And so one of the things, my, I guess my question is, you, you said you have to get together a team. Or you have your team, your maybe your partner, a friend, whomever that may be, a caregiver. But then how do you, what kind of a team are we talking about? Because I know you, met, you, you, you discussed this within the hospital system. Because there's a whole team there you're, you're going to be confronted with or interact with or connected to. So you have to make sure you've got that team in place, too. And what is that team? Sure. So your team is going to start, um, and I'm, I'm going to talk first outside of the hospital, because that's really most of the time where it starts. And then the team that's assembled in the hospital most times is not one that you have a say-so over, but again, after you leave the hospital um, uh, and you're, you're back out in the community or at home, again, you have more say over who's on your team. So it starts with your with a primary care physician, someone who you work with to coordinate your care. And then in the case of cancer, um, you will be referred to an oncologist. And you're going to want to ask for an oncologist who has specific experience with the kind of cancer you have. And again, if you need surgery, you might be referred to a surgeon or a surgical oncologist. So those... Those are ones where you want to make sure that you work with your doctor um, or um, the American Cancer Society um, or uh, finding the large center in your area that specializes in your particular condition to find um, the, the, the team members uh, from the conventional side of medicine, the oncologist, the surgical oncologist, um, etc., who will be the ones on your team. The other part of the team that I um, reference, and excuse me, doctor, I've got what, um, are those conventional, and al- uh, sorry, uh, complementary and alternative medicine practitioners out there who um, also have been found, well, let's talk about cancer, um, to specifically help uh, in the treatment of cancer. So, for example, example, acupuncturist. Acupuncture has been found to help the nausea and the vomiting that's associated with chemotherapy. So you might want to consider also having an acupuncturist on your team. Um, So, uh, for example, that's uh, a particular team, uh, a um, primary care physician, an acupuncturist, and an oncologist who would be the members of your healthcare team if you're going through cancer. What about um, you the also might consider a nutritionist as well. I'm sorry? What about a nutritionist, you just said? What yeah. about your conventional medical uh, physician? Um, are they threatened by, and I use the word threatened because if you're going to start mentioning acupuncturists, alternative medicine, is that something that's accepted now? Is that the conventional wisdom? Yes, we can, you know, we are, we work the alternative and the conventional um, healthcare system works together. Excellent question. 
again, one of the other things that we talk about, and excuse me, doctor, is how to choose, how to find physicians who are open. That might be part of your interviewing process of your physician to find out are they open to other kinds, working with other kinds of practitioners. Because the fact of the matter is, research has shown, for example, acupuncture and the treatment of the nausea and vomiting associated with cancer, that it is um, effective. So therefore, you want to be a part of a team that is open to incorporating other approaches to your symptoms and to your condition. Not everything is proven, but for the ones that there is research showing, yes, this is effective, uh, doctors are, there are doctors definitely out there who are open and doctors who are becoming more open and doctors who are actually even incorporating these types of practitioners into their practice or they've actually gone back to get additional training in that modality. Those doctors are called integrative physicians. So there's a wide spectrum out there. Be clear about what you want and be clear about asking your doctor, is he or she open to working with other practitioners? What about second opinions? Is that necessary? Do, do you, should you always get a second opinion with that kind of a, let's say, a cancer diagnosis? I think second opinions are crucial. They're, they're critical. Um, I think there, there are two instances uh, where you should get a, a second opinion. One is um, in the instance where um, you've talked with your doctor, you've gotten a diagnosis, a treatment is underway, and then one of the things I talk about is making sure that you understand what are the milestones in the treatment. Where should you be and at what point in time? What should you be experiencing? And then, and then what do you need to do? And then if you've done everything you need to do and you're at a certain milestone and you're not seeing the effects that were predicted um, and you go back to your doctor and say, this isn't working, if they don't respond in a way that, that is collaborative and says, okay, let's do something else, then it's time to seek a second opinion. The Can you give me an example of that? Because you talk about a milestone in treatment. What would a milestone be? Let's, give, let's say you're diagnosed with stage 2 or stage 3, or I don't know if that makes a difference, breast cancer. And what would be the milestone, and what do we need to be aware of? Sure. I was really talking generally about um, many different illnesses, but specifically with cancer, um, I was about to say that... Um, for in, in the in the instance of cancer, uh, because sometimes cancer is rapidly progressive and you don't necessarily have the luxury of time, I would seek a second opinion in the instance where you are not in a cancer center, where your diagnosis has not been made in a cancer center. I would go to a cancer center, and those uh, tend to be in academic large hospitals. Um, some are freestanding and get a second opinion right away because you want to be in a place where they're, um, number one, people who have lots of experience taking care of your condition, and number two, where um, you have, again, the healthcare team already assembled where you don't have to go to a lot of different people all across town. You want the convenience of being able to go somewhere where everybody um, is already there. So um, 
my first instance was when I was not necessarily talking about cancer, but conditions in general. Uh, and then the second is for cancer, I would get a second opinion right away, especially if I'm not in a large cancer center. Well, would, let's take another disease then. Aside from cancer, would a milestone in treatment, and uh, because this kind of refers to um, one of your um, nine strategies to follow, which um, you, you indicate have a functional rapport with practitioners, what if you get to a point in your treatment and you realize, and you didn't realize it initially, I'm just not getting along with my primary care, maybe not be a primary care physician, but whoever the the, the physician or the doctor is who's overseeing this whole process, and it's just not working, um, what do you do? Well, uh, just as you would do in any other aspect of your life where you're not satisfied with the service that you're getting, you would find another doctor who um, has a better rapport with you, uh, depending on you know w- what is the reason you're not getting along with them. Are they not compassionate? Are they not good listeners? Um, are they not paying attention to what you say your symptoms are and giving you effective care or effective explanations and treatments for what's going on? Maybe the person is too technical and you don't understand them and they don't take the time to explain. So based upon those uh, issues, then you would interview another doctor to see if that doctor would better fit exactly what you need. Um, uh, For example, uh, a milestone in care, let's say diabetes. Um, uh, Hemoglobin A1C, as I mentioned before, is an index of how, how well your diabetes is improving or responding to therapy. So one thing you would do up front is find out from your doctor, what is my goal? Have a specific goal in mind. And then find out if I take this medicine, um, how long is it going to take me to reach the goal? And then what kinds of self-health actions in terms of nutrition, uh, rest, um, and other uh, maybe supplements that I should be taking will help me reach this goal. And if you go home and you do everything and you don't reach the goal and the doctor really doesn't have anything new to add, that's a time to get a second opinion. Okay. So you need to be goal-oriented. And, and, I, and going back to... Ha- how, what you mentioned in the beginning about defining who you are, I guess you really need to define yourself as a consumer, and you, you're a consumer of health care. And if you're not getting what you want, if you haven't achieved the goals, as you've, de- as you've just described, time to move on and, and time, or, or time to at least evaluate what's happening. And you can be, be specific and objective. Um, that's really good advice. Absolutely. Uh, we talk about on, uh, in Excuse Me, Doctor, uh, in the chapter called Relating to Your Doctor, How to Be Your Best Advocate, we talk about the SMART goals. Everybody might be familiar with SMART goals in other areas of their life, but making your goal specific, making it measurable, like the hemoglobin A1C example I just gave, uh, making it action-oriented, what specifically do you need to do each day to get to that goal, making it realistic. So, for example, if weight loss is part of your therapy, knowing that one to two pounds a week is a realistic goal, and then making it timed. That's the the T in the SMART. Um, Setting the time frame so that you know, again, if you get to this time frame and the goal isn't reached, what needs to be adjusted, what needs to be done better. And you're absolutely right about being a consumer. I try to not use the word patient 
and try to use the word healthcare consumer whenever appropriate because it's important, again, to change that mindset from a passive mindset to a proactive mindset. And being health-empowered really is really about being your best advocate and being a healthcare consumer. Now, the last thing I want to discuss, which of course perhaps isn't the last thing, maybe it's the first thing, I'm not quite sure, but understanding the financial side of your treatment, which you talk about in your book, uh, I think we have to, as a consumer, that's an important part of your whole healthcare treatment. We don't want any surprises at the end. So here you are, you're sick, you've been diagnosed with whatever it is, but on the other hand, now you have to look at how am I going to pay for this, or who's going to pay for this? Exactly. And um, I think that kind of opens the door to talk about um, health care reform. Uh, you know, it, it's been bandied about in terms of something that some people are not happy with. The fact of the matter, though, is it was designed so that people, about 22 million people out there who are uninsured or underinsured, can get insurance. And sure, there may be flaws with the program, but I think the uh, basic premise is to make sure that people have adequate insurance such that if they do get a catastrophic diagnosis, they are in a financial position where they won't go bankrupt from it. Um, so um, getting health insurance is, is one first step. Um, I also, in excuse me, doctor, talk about resources for getting good care if you don't have health, health insurance. And then finally, what to do when the health care bills start, come, start rolling in. Number one is review each bill carefully. Um, there are medical social workers, as you know, of course, um, who uh, work with the hospital who can help you go over your bill um, or in the billing department, help you go over your bill and see are there actually um, charges on here that I didn't incur. And then once you uh, get the final bill where it should be, you can actually negotiate with the hospital and negotiate with the doctors specifically um, if it's something that is out of your ability to pay. A lot of times hospitals... You can actually negotiate, let's say you got some kind of a treatment, what would that be, medication, or would that be some kind of a, a test, or just any and all of those treatments? Any and all of those treatments, including hospital stay charges, including tests, uh, procedures, uh, professional fees, those can all be negotiated based upon your ability to pay. Sometimes they can be waived. Uh, other times payment plans can be set up. So the worst thing to do is to ignore the hospital bill. That, that's the worst thing to do because that's how people end up, you know, having bad credit or losing their house, etc. So address it, negotiate it, realize that it is negotiable and that, um, uh, again, sometimes fees are waived and sometimes payment plans can be established. Dr. Clark, what, under the Affordable Health Care Act, what if you haven't you don't you have don't haven't picked out your insurance yet, um, or you don't have insurance, or you have insurance that's inadequate, and then you get diagnosed with a with a um, a long term illness? Can you then go to the marketplace, pick out the insurance, or choose the insurance that you want or need, and you can get it because even with this pre-existing condition, let's say a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes or cancer or whatever it is. Excellent point, Catherine. Absolutely. Um, 
So uh, one of the uh, changes that has come about as a result of the Affordable Health Care Act is that people with pre-existing conditions cannot be denied insurance. It first started off with children um, that, that came into effect for children and then the entire population. Um, and the key, though, is there is an open enrollment period of time on the health care exchanges. This year it's gone from October and it will go through March 31st of 2014. So during that period of time, you can um, uh, purchase insurance on the health insurance exchanges regardless of your existing health conditions. And you won't be denied, um, you won't be denied care. Uh, sorry, you won't be denied insurance. I know people are so confused about the Affordable Health Care Act. Um, and I know, so it, it's really, and also, let's say, not only being confused about it, but then if you're diagnosed with a, you know, a catastrophic kind of illness, then it really compounds everything. But there are navigators, right? There are what yes. they call navigators who can help you navigate the system if you find yourself in this kind of a, a position. And it's different, I think, in, in, in different states. They have, I know in New York State, um, that we have navigators who are actually social workers or social work students, MSW students who do it. Yeah. They don't necessarily have to be that. Uh, navigators, I guess, come from insurance companies or whatever, but there is that resource out there, right? Absolutely. Um, you can dial uh, 1-800 number, which is um, on healthcare.gov, the website, if you're having problems with the website, or even if you aren't, if you want somebody to guide you through the process of purchasing health insurance for yourself or your family that's most appropriate for your needs, uh, you can dial that 1-800 number. Um, and it's important to know that uh, if you are, for example, a family of four that earns $90,000 or less, you're eligible for certain subsidies to help you pay for the insurance. That's the affordable part of the Affordable Health Care Act. So you might need help, assistance, in seeing whether you're eligible for subsidies. Another reason to then reach out to talk with one of the navigators, A, to decide what, what plan is best for you and your needs, B, to see if you're eligible for subsidies. Well, the Affordable Health Care Act, once we get our act together, and I think it more ha has more to do with the execution of it rather than the act itself, and I think sometimes we confuse the two, but once we're able to execute it properly, uh, does do what you say, which we just started to talk, what we've been talking about throughout the whole show. It empowers you. It empowers you uh, as, as a, an advocate for yourself and as a consumer to be able to get the best kind of health care possible. Um, and I think we're on the road to doing that. It's evolving. I think so, too. And I, I think the key, though, is to understand that insurance gives you access, access to better care. And that's the first step, the foundation to uh, getting good health care if you need it. But the key, though, is that having insurance in and of itself doesn't make you an empowered consumer. Having the attitude first that you are in charge of your health and there are specific things that you can do in your life to make it such that you are in your best health possible. That's a really key step that regardless of the Affordable Health Care Act, we all really should be taking so that 
we um, could live our best lives possible and, and guard our health, which is our most precious resource. And then when we do need to access the system, the healthcare system, we have insurance and we know how to use it to our best benefit and know the advantages of having insurance, of being able to interact with our doctor, of being able to be successful in our hospital stays, um, participate in clinical trials if we need to, and really understand how to manage the financial aspects of our care. Yeah. And we do not have to wait, and I, I think I want to reemphasize this or emphasize this, we don't have to be waiting to wait till we're diagnosed with a serious condition, which is what you've been saying all along. We right. can take control just on a daily basis or when we're healthy and just in terms of our health care. If we start that way, we'll be more prepared when and if we are diagnosed with a, a serious condition. Um, Dr. Clark, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Melissa Clark, MD, author of Excuse Me, Doctor, I've Got What. It's been a real pleasure interviewing you this morning. Great. Thank you so much. And uh, for those people who want to get in touch with me, I'm on Facebook, Dr. Melissa Clark with an E. Also on Twitter at Dr. Melissa Clark or DrMelissaClark.com. And the book is available at Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. Bookstores everywhere. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to, don't go away, um, because we will be back with George Mufari. He's the author of Sexual Euphoria, a complete guide for men and women. Um, we'll be back in a minute. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're a part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is relationship expert George Mufaraj, and author of Sexual Euphoria, a Complete Guide for Men and Women. Uh, our topic today is what is necessary for a successful relationship and what couples can do if their relationship is unstable or unhealthy. Uh, George Mufaraj has been featured in Cosmopolitan, CNN, Huffington Post, and many others for his expertise. Welcome to the show, George. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, I, I don't know anyone who isn't interested in improving their relationship, including myself. So let's start talking about what is necessary for a successful relationship, um, what's necessary, and then what can we do if our relationship is unhealthy or is unstable. Yeah. Um, in my book, uh, Sexual Euphoria, A Complete Guide for Men and Women, I describe uh, communication as being one of the most important factors in a relationship. Um, and the reason why it's important is because it uh, decreases the possibilities of problems arising because of misunderstandings. Um, many times, uh, couples, after a while, drift apart because they stop communicating with each other as they used to at the beginning of the relationship. Why do and they do that? In your experience, why do couples do that? Yes, they get married or they start living together. Everything is euphoric, like you described in your, well, sexual euphoria and communication euphoria, maybe. And then yeah. you say they drift apart. Why do they drift apart? What happens? Um, they take each other for granted. They assume that uh, their partner uh, knows their needs. They assume that their partner can read their mind. So they stop communicating as much as before. Um, the, the, at, at the beginning of the relationship, they're like at their best behavior. They're um, trying to win the other person over. Uh, they have high expectations for the relationship. They're excited to be in a new relationship. After a while, the relationship, uh, uh, they take it for granted. It becomes like a uh, commonplace to them. It becomes like a routine to them. Uh, so they're not excited about it as before, and they don't communicate like before because they expect that their partner will know, uh, will read their mind. And, and the, uh, the most important thing for the couple to do is to keep communicating about everything, every little detail, whether it's money, house cleaning, um, uh, children, uh, uh, finances, even sex. Uh, many problems arise because couples don't communicate about their sexual needs. Well, I want to get into that because I think that's probably one of the most important things, and I think that the sex does go by the by for whatever, or it gets less important as the relationship goes on, as you're living with somebody. But first, what are some of the red flags? Because it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, you, you move in together, you're happy, you're having great sex, you're talking, you're communicating, you're doing things, and it's not just six months later, you know, you've done a 180, but it sort of evolves into this kind of not communicating, not having good sex. So are there red flags along the way related to the topics that you mentioned, children, money, finance, sex? Right. Um, The the red flags are like uh, they they start, uh, one of the partners becomes critical if uh, the other person um, makes a remark 
or reminds him of something, um, uh, because like they take each other for granted. They're not on their best behavior, so uh, that uh, sometimes they become like critical of each other. If somebody, if one of them makes a remark to the other, uh, they're not like before. If someone made that remark, they would be accepting and trying to please the person because they take each other for granted. They become too sensitive for uh, even a, a small remark, and uh, uh, sometimes they, they they might belittle the other partner for um, making a remark or reminding them. Um, and the reason they're doing that is because they're taking the other partner uh, for granted and uh, the relationship is boring and the sex is boring. And uh, one of the major reasons um, they become critical over each, uh, with each other after a while is because of the sex becoming boring. And uh, uh, in my book, Sexual Euphoria, I describe that one important way for the couple to, to keep the passion alive in the relationship and to keep to, to remain in love with each other is for them to keep the sex exciting. And uh, I How talk do you keep about, sex exciting if you've been together for 40 years or 30 years or 20 years and you are yeah. monogamous? And I mean, because that's kind of the question that people don't ask. I mean, but you've written the book, so let's talk yeah. about it because how can sex be exciting if you're with the same person day after day? And I think the statistics, and you probably know them better than I, young people, people in their 20s and 30s in their relationships have sex like on the average of once or a week, maybe only twice a week, and that's the same as senior citizens in their 50s and 60s uh, it's, right. you know, who have sex once or twice a week. Right. I agree. Um, I, I, in the book, there's a whole chapter addre- that addresses that question. And uh, the solution that uh, 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 the book offers and the right solution is that couples should uh, have variety in their sexual encounters so that they keep the sex exciting. Usually, uh, at the beginning of the relationship, the, the couple are excited to be in a new relationship, so the sex is exciting. But after a while, because they do it the same way over and over, it becomes boring. And that's why uh, many relationships after a while end, or even many marriages end after a while, like after 20 years, after 15 years, even after a year or two. And uh, the way that they keep it exciting is by changing uh, 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 even one little thing during a sexual encounter it would keep it exciting. They could either change the sexual position, the way the thrusting is done, who's doing the thrusting, the, the different uh, kissing techniques, the different different touching techniques, what, what's being said uh, during sex, the, the um, pillow talk, um, as they call it. Um, and there are many other things. They could use sex toys. They could use uh, different uh, uh, stuff like to cover one person's uh, eyesight, or to uh, to tie one person's hand and uh, uh, play uh, uh, games, um, and there are um, they could use uh, different uh, fabric to touch each other during sex. There's a whole bunch of tips that are offered in the book. The book it's uh, 418 pages. That, uh, a couple could utilize to keep their sex excited indefinitely. And well, so what many- you're saying, George, is that the sex is really at the cornerstone of a healthy relationship. And if you don't have a good sex, a healthy sex life, you're not going to have a healthy relationship. And there are ways... Exactly. Okay, and so there are ways in which you can keep on 
uh, or keep up a healthy sexual relationship. Uh, the words that come, you know, as I'm listening to you, variety and creativity, but you don't really have to go off the wall. I mean, you could have sex in a different room. I mean, I think some people yeah. have sex in the same room every single time they have sex. That's boring. Right. right. And, and, yeah, I, I talk about that. They could have sex in different uh, rooms in the house. They could also, from time to time, go, like, to a motel or, or um, travel. Sometimes they could go, like, to a, to a picnic. And uh, uh, they could have sex in a tent. Why don't people um, do this? I mean, you're talking about really simple kinds of things. Is it yeah. something, because we have to kind of, I think, as a social worker, as a therapist, you kind of have to look underneath that. There's a reason why they don't do it. I mean, sex is satisfying, although you say, I think in your book, that as much as two-thirds of women in our society do not experience orgasms. That, yeah. That's not a good uh, thing. No, that's not a good thing. Um, the reason most people don't realize it and don't do it because they think that uh, is, is sex is instinctual. There's nothing to be learned about it. They think it comes by instinct. And then they don't think that sex is very important to their relationship. They take it for granted. Because if they thought it was important uh, for a relationship, they would be concerned that they weren't having sex after being in a relationship for a while. So they take sex for granted. They think that it's not important. Well, our culture is child-centered. Once people get married or they make a commitment, whether they're married or not, and decide to have children or adopt children or they have, uh, they begin, I think, to refocus their energy on the children and away from the relationship and away from their sexual, their communication and their sexual relationship. I agree. I talk about that in my book. And uh, uh, m- many times uh, some people have the mess that uh, they feel that uh, once, once there are uh, children in a relationship, that the sex isn't important. They should concentrate on the children. And the sex is like something that they do when they're starting the relationship. But after a while, it's not that important. And that's not true. Sex is very important, and uh, the couple should strive to have it regularly. In my book, I, uh, Sexual Euphoria, I say they should have it at least uh, three times a week so that they keep the passion alive in the relationship and so that they remain in love with each other. And many couples uh, uh, end up cheating on each other because the sex becomes boring. So if they keep the sex exciting, uh, the chances are high that the relationship will be successful and they won't cheat on each other. How do you approach this? If you have one half of the couple, perhaps, who feels sex is pretty good. I mean, whatever, they have different expectations than the other half. Um, so what the, the other half of the couple who said, you know, maybe this isn't working for me. How about some of those women who are not having orgasms but afraid to tell their partners or they fake an orgasm and so they don't say anything and they let it go on for months or years at a time and then suddenly it's like this isn't working for me and the other, their partner is like surprised. So it's, I think it's, you talk about communication. It's really important to talk about how you feel even with, when you're not getting what you want, maybe not at the moment that you're having sex, but in a more, in, in another environment, when you're having a cup of coffee or yeah, tea. The, yeah. Yeah, they should set time aside for them to talk about all the issues in the relationship, especially about sex. And uh, when, uh, in my book, uh, Sexual Euphoria, I talk about uh, how w- some women, uh, like around two-thirds of women don't orgasm. And, Many of them fake an orgasm. They're uh, 
embarrassed. They're not willing to talk about the fact that they're not uh, orgasming with their partner and how their partner could help them orgasm. They'd rather fake the orgasm than talk about it. And uh, this causes uh, problems in the relationship later, later on, and it causes them to have an unfulfilled sex life. So if they set aside time to discuss all the issues in the relationship, especially the sexual issues, and they uh, put effort to have a healthy sex life regularly, like three times a week, then they should do well in the sex life and the relationship. So you have to empower yourself. I mean, what you're saying is it doesn't just come naturally, uh, which is kind of that myth, I guess, that hangs over most of us. Well, sex is natural. Well, I mean, some of it's natural, but on the other hand, I mean, it's not natural. You really have to be very specific. You're saying it's good to have sex three times a week. Sex is good for your health. I mean, I think that that's documented scientifically. I mean, you release certain kinds of chemicals in your body, which are calming, which are stress relieving, uh, which is a, yeah, which, do you you talk about that in the book? Yeah, in the book, uh, there's a whole chapter that talks about how sex benefits a person's health. And, um, what, what, one important aspect is it releases endorphins, which make uh, uh, a person feel better. And when a person feels better, it, he becomes healthier. Uh, he has less, a lesser chance of uh, having heart disease or cancer or any other type of disease. So sex does increase a person's uh, uh, health. It makes him healthier, and it increases uh, his longevity. What about this? I often see, and you see uh, many people, lunchtime, after work, before work, they are working out vigorously. They are exercising. They'll go into a gym at 5 o'clock in the morning or leave after a long day. They've been at work for eight hours, go to a gym, work out, and yet they'll say to you, I don't have time for sex because when I get by the time I get home, I'm tired, I'm irritable, I just want to be left alone, yet they seem to find time to go to the gym at 5 o'clock in the morning or at lunchtime or after work. Yeah, they should put sex as a higher priority than the gym because the, the sex is important for the relationship. That way they remain emotionally close to each other. And sex also makes them uh, physically healthy and emotionally healthy. While as the gym, it only makes them uh, physically and emotionally healthy, but it doesn't uh, make them closer in the relationship. So sex uh, gives them uh, all three benefits, while uh, the gym only gives them two benefits. Yep. (laughs) You have to (laughs) maximize your benefits. And so what do you think about couples who are experiencing problems in communicating about sex? Because I think that's an issue, too. I mean, I think women, and I get into my gender differences here, but I think women more often are able to express themselves when it comes to talking about sex and what they want and what they like and what feels good because they talk about that stuff with their girlfriends. I don't think men... And you could, you're, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but just generally speaking, and I know this is anecdotal, but they don't talk about sex in the same way that women do. So women have more experience, I think, in communicating about what their sexual needs are. Um, whether they can do it with their partner, I guess, is another issue. Yeah, I, um, I, I agree with everything you said. In my book, I talk, I talk about that. Women uh, tend to like to communicate more than men, and that's why many problems happen, because um, men usually don't uh, like to communicate, and uh, they, they 
cut off the woman when the woman is communicating, especially about uh, sex. And that's why many women fake orgasms, because uh, uh, their uh, partner doesn't communicate with them. So they think it's easier if they fake it than talk about it. And um, that's not a good way to handle the situation. They should, the woman, they should explain it to their male partner that uh, they need to communicate uh, more about sex and be reasonable to the and considerate of their needs. That way they both have a happy uh, sex life and happy relationship. I think the issue of trust comes in. If you, I mean, I don't know if that comes before or after. Maybe you can talk about that. But if for one to be able to talk about sex and what you like or telling your partner what you don't like without being critical, just critiquing, you have to have a, a, a trusting relationship. Otherwise, it doesn't work either. And I think sometimes the second part of that is men feel there's something, there's an assault on their masculinity. If, uh, I mean, many times, uh, you know, I've talked to, well, my girlfriends and also in, in counseling people, um, you know, if, if you tell a man that, you know, he's not doing this right or he's not touching you right, they get like, this is an assault on their manhood. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. Uh, in the book, Sexual Euphoria, a Complete Guide for Men and Women, I talk about how, uh, uh, men uh, sometimes feel uh, hurt or sensitive that the woman is giving them pointers about sex. And uh, I make it clear that women should make it clear to their male partners that if uh, she's given them a pointer about how to have uh, a, a better sexual encounter, that doesn't mean that uh, the male isn't a good brother, that that just means that everyone is different, and she's telling him what are, what her needs are, and uh, the man shouldn't feel insulted. Yeah, I think if men understood that women perhaps are more complex animals, <laughs> and they really are, and that they're, this really applies also when it comes to sex, that women like very different kinds of things, different women, and men may too, but I don't think quite as it's, it, they're, they're simpler animals when it comes to sexual satisfaction. That's true. Um, men, usually, uh, it's easier for them to orgasm during sex. Usually, a healthy male can orgasm every time during a sexual encounter, while, uh, while healthy females, two-thirds of them usually don't experience an orgasm. And that's because they need to receive more uh, clitoral stimulation during sex than, than they usually receive. And... Um, so, uh, as you were saying, men, men are simpler uh, creatures uh, when it comes to, uh, to sexual satisfaction than women. Uh, men are more c- concerned, or are, it, it appears that way, concerned about the size of their penis and thinking that's what's going to satisfy a woman, woman rather than being concerned with a woman's clitoris, which is really what... Uh, what, what, help, what, what has to do with or being able to be orgasmic. That's true. Um, you don't need a big penis, necessarily. Yeah, yeah. in my book, a whole chapter is devote, devoted towards uh, the question, does size matter? And uh, I, I make it clear that size doesn't matter, whether the, the size of the man's penis or the size of the woman's vagina, it doesn't matter, because uh, uh, the, the main concern is the total stimulation of the woman uh, during sex in order for the woman to orgasm. 
besides your book, obviously, are there other manuals, books, articles, publications that you would recommend for people to read, for couples to read, that they should... Um... Yeah, um, other uh, uh, publications that I would recommend is um, uh, st- uh, studies done by Alfred Kinsey and Masters and Johnson and uh, Sheer Height. Okay, and we haven't had, you know, those are actually, they've been around for quite a long time. Yeah. But, yeah, but so like, are there any oh, more recent studies or any more studies that, you know, that maybe... Yeah, there was a survey, Sex in America. Uh, it was a book. Uh, it's very informative. It gives uh, people information about uh, um, people's practices uh, in their sex life. And I think last, which is, uh, shouldn't necessarily be last, but it's, it's okay to go for counseling. I mean, there are sex therapists, there are counselors, there are social workers, uh, psychi- even psychiatrists who specialize in sex therapy, and that's okay. And it, um, I think admitting that, that there, you have a problem or being aware that you have a problem that could actually ruin your relationship is important, but doing something about it, it's okay to get help outside of just the two of you communicating. Yeah. Yeah, the couples should try to solve the problems on their own, and uh, most of the time they're able to. However, if they cannot, then they should seek uh, the services of a pro- professional. And uh, if they're having problems with sex, they should go to a sex therapist. And if they're having problems um, in their relationship, and it's not sex, their sex life is good, then they should go to a relationship counselor. Well, I think we have, I think we agree. I mean, sex really has to take priority in a relationship. And if yeah. you don't have good sex and you don't have a good understanding and you can't communicate and you're not satisfied, your relationship is really doomed. That's true. I mean, I and I'll just leave this as an example. I had a girlfriend who had a relation who was married for 25 30 years almost. And her husband ended up being with somebody else for many, many years. And I said, well, what was your sex life? You know, what was it like? And she said, well, it wasn't very good. We didn't have much sex, but I always thought it because he was too busy, et cetera. And she wasn't paying attention. And yeah, yeah. That's a common mistake many couples do. That's why more than 50% of first marriages end in divorce. Many couples do exactly what your girlfriend did. They... They, they get busy with their regular affairs, they take sex for granted, it becomes boring for them, and they don't pay it any mind, they don't think sex is important. And uh, that causes the relationship to end many times. So, Well, George, thanks they, so much for joining us this morning. We have to say goodbye, but George okay. Mufarez, author of Sexual Euphoria, a complete guide for men and women, and you can buy the book at, on Amazon.com, I guess bookstores everywhere. Yeah, and on barnesandnobles.com. And barnesandnobles.com. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Good. Have a great day. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at 
www.katherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.